The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. Any Saturday Night Live watchers in the room? Yeah, it's one of those few. It's one of those few cross-generational things. It's been on for so long, and people have connected to it at such different points in its history. So, if you're a Saturday Night Live, can't say it, Saturday Night Live watcher, you might know who this is. Sashir Zamata. She recently left the cast, actually, sad face for me, because I thought she was great. She was interviewed a couple of months ago on a podcast I listened to called Another Round with Tracy and Heaven. Anybody listen to Another Round? I recommend it. (laughs) It's a podcast that interviews people about pop culture and current social issues and all kinds of different stuff. And Tracy and Heaven had Sashir Zamata on talking a little bit at one point about how she got into improv. They were asking her what her home was like, what her family was like. Were people funny, right? Did people support her in this thing that she wanted to do that, for the most part, right, if your 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 14-year-old says, I want to do improv comedy, a parent might be a little worried, right? But Sashir Zamata said, my parents actually, they never steered me towards improv, but they had that spirit of improv, and I think that helped in how they raised me. Does anybody know what the one cardinal rule of improv is? The one word you never say. Correct. And what do you say instead? Yes and, right? Yes and. To keep the story going, to keep the movement happening. So Shir Zamata told a story about when she was five years old. She woke up one morning and she was pouring herself a glass of juice. And she thought to herself, you know, I love juice. And I love cheese. Why is there not cheese juice? <laughs> juice is delicious. Cheese is delicious. Who, who, who has never put these two together before? And so she went up to her parents and she said, I want to try making some cheese juice. And she said, God bless my parents. They said, all right, let's try it. And they pulled out their blender. Mm-hmm. And Sashir, little Sashir went into her fridge and she pulled out five slices of American cheese and pulled up a stool to the counter and unwrapped each slice of American cheese and put it in the blender. And then she said, you know, we're going to need, like, water so that it becomes juice. And her parents said, okay. And they helped her. They got some water. They poured it in. And she said, what else goes in juice? It's usually sweet. And cheese isn't very sweet. So I guess we should add some sugar. Her parents pulled the sugar out of the cabinet. She poured sugar into the blender, put on the lid, spun it around, cheese juice. Her parents got three cups, and she poured a little bit into every cup. And her parents said, why don't you try it first, (laughs) Sashir? And she picked it up all proud, and she took a sip, and she went, this is nasty. (laughs) And her parents, playing along, took their little sip, and they said, you know what, you're right. I'm glad we did this. Now we know why there's no cheese juice. Tracy and Heaven, the two hosts, were kind of amazed, right? Just like us, they were laughing at the story because it's unusual. It's, uh, it's a little out of the norm of how most parents are. You know, we could have easily told little Sashir that that wasn't going to be good, and we would have been right, right? But they were kind of admiring her parents as well. Tracy actually said, you know, I really hope that one day when I'm a mom, that I'm the kind of mom who makes cheese juice with her kids. We 
often exist in environments like this that welcome our mistakes so fully and so openly. Even in the song that our band just sang so beautifully, Everything is Holy Now, there aren't any lines in that song about failure. There aren't any lines in that song about the things that go wrong or the mistakes that we make. It's not typical in our world to think about celebrating failures or weaknesses or vulnerabilities or hurts or brokenness. I was thinking about it a lot this week, and I realized that some of this has to do less with the mistake itself, with the thing that goes wrong, and a lot more to do with what happens after it. Right? We have a sort of a culture of shame sometimes or denial around mistakes. We want to brush them under the rug. We don't want to show them. We are ashamed to show when we have screwed up. We learn this often pretty early in our lives, that when we miss the mark on something, there are learned emotions and physical sensations even in our bodies, right? How do we feel? We feel this unease. We feel a sense of sadness or disappointment. We feel fear. In our bodies, sometimes we shrink. You know, we actually kind of hide. We make ourselves small. And it's not the fact of the failure that makes us feel this kind of way. It is that fear, that conditioning, what we've learned about what happens to us afterward. I'll give you an example. I was driving in South Philadelphia where I live a couple weeks ago to go meet friends for dinner. And I was in a rush. I was coming back from a Wellsprings thing, and I was running late to meet them. And I saw the coveted parking spot, right, in South Philly. When you see a spot, you go for it. And in my eagerness and my rush, I pulled up next to the car in front of it to start the parallel park, and I missed. I was too close. I didn't miss, actually. I hit the rearview mirror, the side mirror, with my side mirror, and it knocked off the other car. And I realized in that moment... All of these stories started playing in my head, right? This is going to be expensive. That was the first one. Who is this person? What are they going to be like? Are they going to be a kind and understanding human being about this? Or are they going to be very angry and rageful? My friends already are waiting for me. And now I'm going to be even later getting in there. Not to mention the fact that when I rooted through my bag for a pen so I could write a note on the person's windshield, I couldn't find a pen. So now I'm thinking, okay, I have to go into the restaurant, go up to the bar, ask to borrow a pen, wave to my friends because they're going to see me. And I'm going to have to be like, hold on, and then go back outside and write a note. And this is another five, ten minutes. How embarrassing. But what really happened, right, is that I made a mistake. Something of value to someone else got damaged, and it would need to be fixed. But there's all this emotion, and there's all this story that comes up around it. What's that phrase, the cover-up is worse than the crime? Yeah. That is the stuff that brings in all that stress and that brings in all that drama. Unitarian Universalists, people in our faith tradition, don't talk very much about the S word, sin. It's a word that we often hear in Religious context is connected to another word, right? What goes before sin? Original. And part of the reason I think we don't talk about it is because we don't believe in original sin. We certainly don't believe it's passed down maternally, right? 
But there's another word that we might want to think about connecting to the S word, which could be universal. Just the idea that perfection is not a real thing for any of us. That all of us miss the mark. That it happens to everyone. There's a shadow side, I think, to our traditions, sometimes compulsive de-emphasis, hiding away, pushing aside of sin, which is that we don't have very much spiritual guidance in our tradition about how to deal with our mistakes. Historically, it makes sense that we don't talk about this very much in our tradition. The one place where Unitarians and Universalists, the two historic liberal Christian traditions that eventually merged to become the modern denomination we're a part of, historically those two traditions disagreed on this topic. They disagreed about what our mistakes meant in our lives. And actually there's an old joke that crystallizes this pretty clearly. How did the Unitarians and the Universalists agree that there was no hell? Oh, well, the Universalists believed that God, that all-loving God, was too good to damn them to eternity. And Unitarians, who believe in perfection of character and the power of rational mind and humanism, believed that they were too good for God to damn them. (laughs) So they met in the middle. It's telling that this joke is actually still some of the best-developed thinking on sin and salvation in our tradition. You use know who we are very deeply on a host of different topics. We know that we believe that there's a love that is unfailing and available to all of us. We know that we believe that there's a personal sense of accessibility we have to spiritual wisdom, that it speaks to each of us in our own heart's language. It's available and accessible to us, not just in books written long ago, but in our daily lives. But we don't have much to say in the way of brokenness and what that means for us. And you might say, well, who cares? You know, we're focused on the finish line, eyes on the prize, right? Love and justice. That's where we should put our attention. And that is great. But as the author and lawyer, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson says, you have to tell the truth before you get to reconciliation. Some of you know this line from song anthem by leonard cohen it's memed everywhere on the internet there is a crack in everything that's how the light gets in what does a shame-based culture say about the cracks in our lives right it says what crack there's no crack here quick cover that up get some spackle right get some foundation get some cover up of some kind Our culture says never show your weaknesses on the field. Save face at work. Keep it to yourself at the party or around the dinner table. Cover up the pain with your family or your spouse or your friends. We don't want people to see these cracks in our character or our behavior or our appearance. But when we say don't show that crack. What we're really saying is we're all full up on light. Thank you very much, right? We're good. And I don't think that's actually what we want to say. There's no grace or healing or reconciliation without truth. In our collection of 
volunteer teams and ministries that make Wellsprings what it is. We have one group, the Leadership Development Ministry. It's a group of volunteers whose only role is to support and nurture all of the other leaders of all of our other volunteer teams. Our Leadership Development Ministry volunteers recently hosted a retreat for 30 or so of all of our volunteers in leadership, and they decided to focus this retreat on the theme of giving and receiving feedback. Wow. Everybody's going to want to come to that, right? A four-hour retreat on feedback. It's like a coupon for the dentist, yeah? Yeah. They were aware of their advertising problems, but I have to say, and I had nothing to do with leading the retreat. I got to just receive it. Wow, it was a powerful day, and I heard that from others who were there as well. I see some nods, because it started to give us a way to talk helpfully and healthfully to each other about our mistakes. Most of us are here at Wellsprings because we're seeking some kind of growth, personal or spiritual growth. And we can't grow without looking at our mistakes. They're the soil where those seeds of growth are going to take root for us. That's probably why in the formation process to become ministers that Ken went through, that I went through, that Greg, our former intern, went through with all of you. In our formation process, we make tons of mistakes and we receive tons, believe me, tons of feedback And, you know, you use are so nice, right? We try to get around it. We have all these euphemisms in our culture for feedback. One I never heard before I started becoming a UU minister. I was filling out a form one day, and it said, tell us about your growing edges. I'd never heard that before. I I was with a friend, and I showed it to him. I said, what do you think this means? And he's like, so, like, probably like things you suck at. It's a pretty mighty reframe, right, to go from that to growing edge. And yet it is true. We need that feedback to grow. Those places are the edges of our growth that are ready to expand. As one of our leaders shared at the retreat, it can really be helpful sometimes to think about feedback like a sweater, like getting a sweater. You might like the sweater, you might not like the sweater, right? But if you want to be kind, you say thank you. You appreciate that the sweater was given as a gift. And then you realize you decide what to do with the sweater. You might be making the same mistake over and over and be frustrated and not know what to do. And then somebody gives you the perfect feedback sweater, right? You're cold and you're like, this is great. It fits perfectly. It's my style. You might put it on right away and wear it home. That's the best kind of feedback to get. Or you might get some feedback that you're not quite ready for. You're not sure about it yet. It's the wrong season. You're getting a sweater in May. And you're like, thank you. (laughs) But maybe you put it in the drawer. And you hold on to it. And when cold weather comes around, you might find yourself calling up that gift giver and saying, I didn't get it then, but I really needed this now. So thank you. And sometimes you get feedback that just doesn't fit. Sometimes it is too small or too big 
and you say thank you, then you have a choice of what to do then, too. Do you want to talk to the person about what size sweater you wear? Do you want to think about, yeah, I guess I could slim down or bulk up, right? But do I really want to? And maybe that sweater gets returned so that somebody who can use it will be able to be warm. There's a saying I heard first from a Wellsprings member, the harder the truth to tell, the truer the friend to tell it. Kindness and trust prepare us to hear hard truths about our mistakes. And at the end of the day, in terms of what works really to support our growth, it's that relationship that we have that matters way more than our knowledge or our experience when we're giving feedback, or even the correctness or incorrectness of the feedback. Because we know that when a friend wants the best for us, we can trust that they're more interested in seeing us grow than in exactly how we get there. And we might be willing to try a sweater on just to see. I have a friend who I was curious to talk to about this topic of working with our mistakes and failures, and you'll see why in a minute. He does it every day. It's my friend Amelia's husband, Jared Green. He has spent about a decade working as a preschool teacher now. And he is currently the co-director of a community preschool in West Philadelphia and an author now published a book called I'm Okay about building resilience in young kids. He and I were chatting a few weeks ago. I knew that this message series was what we were going to be talking about in the fall at Wellsprings. And so I asked him what he thinks of this idea that's popular now in educational circles about creating environments where it's safe to fail. Environments where it's safe for students to take risks, where they're rewarded for the risk they take more than for the result. And he called me up again this week, and he actually said that after he and I had talked, he went back to his teachers on staff, and he asked them about my question. And he said, you know, it's funny, when I framed it as allowing kids to fail, everybody drew a blank. Because they're like, we teach preschool, what do you mean allowing kids to fail? (laughs) Kids fail, they fail whether we allow it or not. It happens all the time. They have hundreds of examples every day of little ones making mistakes making choices with good consequences and bad consequences. But it was really hard for any of them to imagine calling any of that failure. Failure had this finality for them that never reflected the way that they actually worked with and talked to those kids. He said the school has this kind of instant do-over culture, he was trying to explain to me. You know, right when a teacher notices a mistake, it's their practice every single time to open up an opportunity to try again. What that looks like might be a teacher kneeling down to somebody in the classroom and saying, hey, I noticed you took those blocks away from Joey without asking. What are some words that you could say to let Joey know that you want the blocks? Without shame. And the funny thing is, when you actually treat it without shame and when you tie and connect into kids' natural curiosity about how the world works and how they can operate within it, it is very effective. Kids want to know how to figure out their problems. Eight years ago, Jared said he was a teacher in a classroom for three-year-olds. And there's a little girl 
He said, I'll call her Sophie in the story. She was throwing sand in the sandbox, and it was getting in other kids' faces, and it wasn't safe, right? And so he went over to the sandbox, and he knelt down next to her, and he said, Sophie, it's not okay to throw sand because it's not safe. And he said, you know, most of the time kids either go, okay, or they, you know, push back. But she did this avoidant thing that kids do sometimes, too. She kind of looked up at the sky. She kind of looked around. She didn't say anything. And he said, Sophie, I I need to know that you can hear me. and, And I just need to know that you're hearing what I'm saying. Do you understand? And she twirled her finger in the sand. So he said, why don't we go and sit together on that bench? She nodded. She got up. She walked with him. She sat down. And he said, Sophie, you get to decide when you're ready. But I need you to tell me when you're ready to hear what I have to say so that we can talk about it. Okay? She said, okay. He said, they sat there for a while. (laughs) And every three minutes or so, he would ask her, he'd check in with her, are you ready to to chat about the sand no after about 15 minutes of sitting on the bench he said well Sophie it's time for me to go clean the classroom up before the end of the day so would you like to talk now before I go inside or do you want to come inside and sit with me she said sit he said okay so they walked into the classroom she pulled up a stool she sat where she could look out the open door and watch all the other kids play And Jared cleaned up the books, and he straightened up all the blocks. He washed out the cups with paint and paintbrushes. And when he was almost done, he went back over to her and asked the same question. And he got the same answer. So he said, okay, Sophie, let me tell you what I think is happening. I could be wrong. But I think that you think if we sit here long enough, we'll get to the end of the school day, And your dad will come to pick you up, and then we won't have to talk about this. But I need to tell you that this conversation is so important to me that that's not what's going to happen. If your dad gets here, I'm going to ask him to wait, too, until you're ready. And then if the school needs to lock up and you and your dad need to go home to eat, that's fine. But i got to tell you, when you come to school tomorrow, we're going to be sitting here again. Because this conversation matters that much to me. So whatever happens, it can take a long time or a short time, but the next thing that's going to happen for you at school is that you and I are going to talk about throwing sand. And he gave her a minute to think about that. And while he was wiping down the board, he heard a little tiny voice behind him. I'm ready. Sophie, it's not okay to throw sand because it's not safe. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. You can go back to playing. Thank you, teacher. And she ran back outside. We hear stories like this, and they probably don't feel like a lot of our experiences. Feedback of any kind, is so much more often rooted in punishment for us, in shame and fear, not in connection and care. As adults, we are at a real disadvantage because we may have a lot of that shame and fear that we might need to unlearn. 
but what would our world be like if we did more teaching like this from the beginning? And what would our world be like if we tried to practice it more often with each other as adults? The good news is that none of us has to do this alone, right? It's not up to each of us to get everything right all the time, all by ourselves. That's good news. And it's good news that we don't have to shrink and be small to be kind. We can all remind each other that every failure is a potential learning experience. It is a growing edge. And we can practice this with kids and with grown-ups, and what we might end up with is grown-ups who can handle all of these adult situations of failure and frustration with a lot more grace and resilience, and who will, at the end of the day, just be a lot more satisfied with their lives as a result. It's that invitation to grace out of the pit of our mistakes that really helps us grow. And it can really be a gift when we find a growing edge. But we only find it when we're willing to see the brokenness or the dissatisfaction in ourselves that reveals a healthy hunger for something different, for something good. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? Spirit of all that we do, greater presence that is with us in each and every moment, moments we are proud of, moments we are disappointed by. Help us remember that the benefit of believing in an unconditional love, in a power of love that is so much greater than any of us can imagine receiving from each other as humans, the beauty of believing that that love is out there is that we believe it's there for us in the moments that we really need it most. And that we believe that life is not finished with us yet in those moments. That there's more to come. And there's more growth that lies ahead of us. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.